Hello and welcome to this episode of Net Zero Nudge, a podcast box set series by Energy Voice in association with EY. I'm Ed Reed. I'm an editor at Energy Voice. Over the course of this series, we've, we've, we've taken a look at various different aspects of how the UK is working to achieve its net zero goals. And today we're going to be looking at transportation and what options there are beyond the kind of conventional petrol and diesel. I'm delighted to be joined by Maria Benson, partner and principal at EY, Neil Isaacson, CEO of Liberty Charge, and Peter Dominey, COO at Teva. An increase in renewable energy is helping green the country's power consumption. Historically, though, electricity has been a tougher tool to decarbonise road transportation. While transport's oil demand dipped during COVID, it is now rising again. But there's a clear shift coming of moving towards electric vehicles, sometimes known as EVs. There are around 500,000 EVs in the UK at the moment, of around 33 million cars registered in the country. We've produced and bought a record number in 2021, but the numbers continue to be dominated by conventional internal combustion engines. It's not just about the number of vehicles, though. There's also a need for new infrastructure. Rather than filling up at the fuel pump, EVs need to be plugged in, either at home or in public stations. There are about 30,000 charging stations in the UK as of the beginning of the year, but some areas are better endowed than others. London, for instance, is overrepresented in numbers of charges per head, something like five times the number seen in Northern Ireland. So there are some real interesting disparities there on a sort of a regional level. The government set a target of ending conventional vehicle sales by 2030, a move that is being seen in a number of countries. I think we've seen uh, recently that California has set plans to ban petrol cars by 2035, which feels like a significant move given the impact across the US that that state has. There have been some really interesting discussions around autonomous vehicles too, which would be a fantastic innovation for those of us who have to drive across the country for our summer holidays. Although I can see there are also other applications. Technology is changing and government is setting clear directions. But Maria, I'm going to start with you. I wonder, are EVs a luxury or a necessity? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So I think what we've seen is that a lot of the OEMs, the car manufacturers, have really focused on the luxury segment for a lot of really good reasons. There's a lot more innovation. People can afford to pay for that innovation, etc. But I also feel like at the moment, the number of uh, new vehicles uh, coming out of the OEMs really across the um, the price brackets is increasing. And also what I really find interesting about this sector is the innovation going on around how you access the vehicles. So less reliance on buying cars or leasing cars, which uh, for some people can be really expensive, but there's lots of other models now how you can actually get access to an EV. So I think uh, you know things are improving and it's definitely not just a luxury segment car. Peter, I'm going I'm to come to you. Obviously, you know, Teva being what it is, you're, you know, I suppose the idea of, uh, of seeing EVs as, as, as a luxury seems like maybe an anathema to you. But I mean, when you're talking to people about this, sort of the economics of it, how, how, how do you put forward that case? The economics of it are obviously an EV will cost more because of the additional technology that has to be put in there and the, the early stage of some of that technology. But the cost over the life is much lower. So And, it, and that opens up all sorts of different opportunities for, for how you procure the vehicle, be that a passenger vehicle or a commercial vehicle. And, and most people today are moving towards a pay on use, some sort of lease arrangement or higher purchase arrangement. So you start to save effectively in day one now. So the economics work. 
And I think they work equally well for passenger car or commercial vehicles. And Neil, what are your thoughts in, in terms of how, how, how we should look at that sort of market going forward? It's an interesting space because, um, as Maria was saying, you know, we've seen this influx of um, high-end cars. But equally, we know the OEMs are not only focusing on the on the mid, mid to lower market as well, but actually focusing more and more on the um, like commercial vehicles and making sure that there's, there's vehicles for almost, almost every purpose um, and use case. And, and I think that's what still developing we've got to get vehicles for everyone um, every every price range every use case um, and then in the volumes needed to be able to hit the transition that the government has set um, and ideally get there quicker. And I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the government having sort of set that target of, of, of 2030 to kind of phase out con- conventional vehicles, and I think 2035 for, for sort of hybrid. Are we moving as fast as we need to? Should we, uh, for want of a, of a better phrase, put our, put our foot on the accelerator? I think it's a yes to, to all aspects of it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and from a electric vehicle charging infrastructure perspective a definite yes um, as you said in your as you said in your introduction ed you know we're around about 30,000 public chargers today um, you know if you begin to lift the bonnet on that um, how many of those 30,000 are fit for purpose working in the right place aren't blocked you know that number comes down pretty quickly actually when you when you begin to look at it and the government has set themselves a target uh, of 300,000 publicly accessible charge points by 2030 so that's less than um, seven and a half years to get there and at the rate we've installed you look at how long it's taken us to get to 30,000 and you look at how long we've got to get to 300,000 it doesn't take you long to realize that we just don't we have enough time, but at the rate we're going at the moment, we just won't get there. Maria, obviously, uh, charges are, are going to be close to Neil's heart. Do you see this as a restriction also to the to, to the sector? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think what I always come back to is there is a lot of um, complexity around this, and I think all the parts need to move together. So, you know, I do I do appreciate that for investors in in infrastructure, for example, it's difficult to make the economic case for investing well ahead of when we think the vehicles will be on the road, but equally, uh, you know, a lot of consumers are still worried and business, businesses as well, for that matter, are, are still worried about the lack of infrastructure. There does need to be a, a sort of moving moving ahead in tandem sort of uh, approach to this. But, you know, clearly, the more cars we have on the roads, the bigger the second-hand market, which makes the cars available to more consumers. You know, we can, we can create a virtuous circle but as Neil says, it's you know it takes probably more effort and and a little bit more acceleration than than we're seeing at the moment. Sure, Peter. I mean, looking at that kind of question about the sort of the economics of it. I mean, obviously, passenger cars in a in a way are possibly one could see them as a, as, a, as a luxury, right? You know, I see I see a sort of a Tesla driving the, down the road, and I think you know that's kind of cool. I you know would quite fancy driving a Tesla, even though the uh, the, the you know the the, the price uh, maybe maybe a bit steep. You know, obviously there are sort of ways to do it. But you know, obviously, there are there are sort of other options. But you know, when when it comes to uh, commercial vehicles, right? I mean, guys, you know, driving driving lorries, it's going to be less about hey, that's that's a cool looking Tesla, presumably, and more about the sort of you know, do do the sums add up. So, what is your thought on that line? I mean, do the numbers work for people who are trying to make those kind of hard headed, less possibly less aesthetic decisions that I'm making with my uh, Tesla appreciation? When someone's looking at, at sort of you know, transitioning a fleet from sort of conventional diesel to something that maybe feels a little bit untested that has these sort of challenges around charging around infrastructure what's what's the what's the rationale the, the numbers definitely work um, it is a completely 
different proposition and different challenge. If you think about the people that are making the decision to move from a diesel combustion engine truck to a uh, an EV or a, a zero emission vehicle, they're, they're faced with many, many challenges. They're faced with uh, a challenge of the cost of capital has just increased. I've got to add some cost into my business for the infrastructure to be able to charge those vehicles. I've got to convince my workforce that this is a positive move. Um, you know, there will be some scepticism and there's some, some definite need for some really careful uh, education and change management of, of the people that will be driving these vehicles. So by the time you, you have to go through all those challenges and overcome them, you're then faced with this decision of, well, do I need to do this? And, and if we if we consider that an average life of a, a commercial truck is seven years, with changes for light commercial coming in sort of 2035 and 2040 being for the, the medium to high duty, I've got lots of time to make up my mind, so I don't actually need to do this. It's a very, very different proposition in terms of the use case. Um, most passenger car drivers will drive for about 90 minutes a day. The commercial truck is a workhorse. It has to be out there for eight, nine, ten hours a day. So the proposition is very different. The order at which you make decisions is different. The first thing you have to ensure is that the product will do the job. The second thing is then it has to be cost effective. And it's only then the fact that it's a zero emission vehicle becomes a consideration. So we have to overcome all those hurdles first. And the only way to overcome that is, is to really think about this as a systems issue. And, and the whole ecosystem has to come together and everyone has to collaborate to make this happen. It won't happen by just one party trying to push this agenda. It has to be a collaborative approach. Just picking up on that point, Peter, the, the, you know, there's some interesting examples. Um, I can't name them, unfortunately, but there's some interesting examples at the moment of fleets that have electrified in the UK. And because they don't have that charging infrastructure in the right place, it's forcing the drivers to, to detour outside of um, work routines. And actually, it's 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 significantly impacting productivity which is skewing the business case back to would you believe it drivers taking back petrol and diesel vehicles which is at this point you think a complete uh, a complete disaster but it, you know it's happening because you know as peter says the infrastructure and the vehicles aren't moving at the same pace and neil it's a it's a really good point even that um i think if we look at passenger cars you know i genuinely believe and i think we've just seen first half year numbers that 14% of all new registration were EVs this year in the UK. So we're past that tipping point. We're past early adopters. There are more people now considering EVs. That will only continue to grow if all of those people buying EVs have a great experience. The minute large numbers of those people start to have a poor experience because of inability to charge or breaking down because they've run out of um, you know, their state of charge has, has gone so low. They will tell lots of people and that will start to have the opposite effect. It will start to plateau again. So it's really important that that infrastructure comes behind it and it, and it stays ahead. Otherwise, it will actually start to reverse the real positive growth that we've got at the moment. I mean, that, that certainly feels like it rings true. I mean, I know sort of anecdotally, like a friend of mine who who had an EV and, and just sort of struggled with doing a lot of driving and, and, and you know, he just couldn't get couldn't get the, the right number of miles out of the car. And so he's he's ended up with some sort of uh, like a sort of a, a, a plug-in hybrid. So in terms of that sort of range anxiety term, which obviously, you know, is is one that we've all sort of heard, you, you know, you can have a sort of a debate around. Is that is that something that people are still concerned about? I mean, I think, you know, you look at you know cars and you know you know 
the the number of, of, of trips that I do, for instance, of more than say a hundred miles, doesn't doesn't seem like a, like a big problem. But Neil, do you think that that is still putting people off that kind of question about running out of battery and being sort of marooned? Yeah, and I think that I think the interesting. Um phrase that I think people are now moving away from range anxiety to charger anxiety is exactly that point Ed which is as Maria says you're seeing more and more OEMs bringing out more vehicles and yes there's a lot of those are focused on big battery life um, so that you can you can get across this issue of you know 300 miles without without problem um, even with the heater on which is fantastic and I think you know so that issue I think is being addressed but I think the you're, you're absolutely right to point out the fact that people are now having charger anxiety which is okay I'm going to plan a route and on route, I'm going to go and use this charge point. But what happens if it's not working? What happens if the reliability isn't up to um, you know 90, 99%? What happens if um, there's a queue of people already there? You know, suddenly you're you know if, if if from a leisure perspective you're planning in a trip and those charge points, and it's happened to me on several occasions already, not surprisingly. But you know, you get there and there's a there's a huge queue of people, or you know there's a you know there's a um, an event nearby and, and there's a there's a traffic. Uh, jam which means you just can't get there and then suddenly you've got to plan in your journey which is you know yes this is my first stop where I'm going to go but if that doesn't work this is my second option this is my third option and this is my fourth option so there's a lot more planning involved but to be fair yeah and, and as Peter says if we're getting too many people that are going do you know what this just doesn't work for me they'll just they'll just abstain from the marketplace and they'll wait until the infrastructure gets better and I think kind of comes back full circle a little bit, which is, yes, the government has set a deadline of 2030 to get 300,000 public charging points out there. In reality, we need them a lot sooner because we've got to give people the confidence that the infrastructure is there. That's the critical thing. I was going to also add to that, Neil. One of the differences between filling up petrol and, and charging is that petrol station or fuel stations are a sort of a specific area. It's sort of monitored let's say there's usually staff on the site all the time so it's that it's that sort of secure in a way environment whereas charges can be placed anywhere and they're they're you know out in the in the rain and what what have you so i think one of the things that uh, i feel a little bit the market hasn't really thought about is what does that mean in terms of that reliability that that neil mentioned and so one of the i think trends that we're starting to see is using uh, data and clever solutions to bring more visibility around access to charges, whether it's physically exactly where they are located, you know, whether there is a queue there, what the statistics are around downtime, all of that. And just that data is is a lot, a lot of cases is already available, but it's just making them more available to the drivers uh, through um, onboard systems so that you don't have that uncertainty that, you know, for people who drive petrol or diesel cars uh, simply don't have to deal with. Peter, I mean, you know, I mean, does this feel like it's kind of ringing true? Do you kind of get this kind of feedback from your customers, people who might be kind of concerned about the sort of the practicality of of, of, of charging and, and how to incorporate, I suppose, that sort of charging challenge with, uh, as you say, right, having to be on the road for, for say, eight hours at a time? Yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit different because, uh, you know, most of our customers are are point to point or, you know, the vehicle will start, in, start and finish in the same location. So the infrastructure challenge um, in terms of its availability is easily overcome. Uh, there's still the reliability question, so it still has to be reliable. Some of the bigger challenges in the, in the, in the commercial sector is that if you've got 50 trucks that have now all returned at the end of that shift and they all plug in, 
is there enough power to the actual site? And in most instances, there will not be. And a lot of these sites will be in locations that the cost to actually upgrade those sites is quite significant. Um, so it's, it's, it's at the root, it's the same challenge. Uh, it just manifests itself in a different way. And Neil, I mean, obviously, you know, you're kind of in the in in the business. I mean, do you see the kind of this this question about sort of you know, I suppose, kind of grid availability transmission that Peter's raised in in terms of your sites? Is that is that a problem that you face, or is it uh, is it is it manageable? It's more manageable depending on what speed you're deploying um, and and the location of those charge points. So uh, when we're deploying in the on-street environment, we're normally looking to deploy uh, between four and six charging sockets, and the speed of those will vary between sort of seven and 22 kilowatts. So in that scenario, you can get away with a, a 69 kVA supply. And in the vast majority of cases, certainly in cities, you know, those are at this point in time, fairly easy to come by, not always. Um, and there are definitely some areas in across the UK where even that level of supply is going to cause you a problem. But in that scenario, so that's and that's you know perfect for you know either either grazing with a dwell time of you know somewhere between four and and, and eight hours, depending on how your 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 battery uh, top up needs to be. When you're looking at you know a cluster of rapid charges in a rapid charger hub with maybe you know eight uh, eight to ten um, fifty or 100, 100 kilowatt chargers, then suddenly the grid constraint and need is is significant and and the draw is significant and therefore you are very much more at the uh, the will as peter was saying of, of what capacity is available and if the capacity isn't available um, then you're going to be paying for the grid upgrade to, to get that capacity there and if you take that you take that example even further to a depot where you've got maybe you know 100 vehicles then you're really reliant and especially heavy goods or even light good vehicles that's where you're going to be really reliant on having as, as peter says a significant upgrade uh, probably to what exists there and then the cost in those in those scenarios is is frightening and you know what, what when we come and, and speak to to landlords we're very much a case of of you know it's how do you create this mosaic of different charging solutions so that you know whether whether you've got a fleet that doesn't have uh, that is back to home it doesn't use a depot so how do you create solutions that work for them um, so yes you're always going to need a rapid top up probably somewhere in the journey but actually if you can provide a solution whereby those vehicles get home in the evening um, and have a full charge during the night and therefore in the morning they're topped up and ready to go that seems ideal scenario but there are always going to be situations when when that doesn't work close enough to somebody's home and so you've then got to think about well what are the mechanics of making that work and and what are the other solutions that, that those drivers can use yes it's about collaboration it's also about being creative um, but coming back to the point we made earlier it's also being cognizant of the business case that you're trying to meet certainly in the in the business scenario and how much time is having to to be used to to charge and you know how much time is is being required outside of the route that that, that person is taking and, and what's that impact on the business case so there's a lot of considerations to think through in this um in this journey and as you say collaboration is is critical in that i think i think we're gonna we're gonna take a a little break here uh, but we'll be back after this short message in the midst of an industry undergoing fundamental change ey teams offer deep sector knowledge highly integrated solutions and a global ey network to help you reshape your business for the future this time for disruption is also a time of opportunity for organizations to get ahead of change Decarbonisation, digitalisation, cost pressures and geopolitical uncertainty are just some of the forces transforming the energy and resources industry. EY Energy and Resources teams can help you focus on the structure, services, technologies and capabilities needed to create long-term value and bring you towards the future of energy. 
Together, we can unlock the opportunities of an uncertain future and build a better working world. We've talked through that sort of, you know, kind of some of those bottlenecks, but what should come next? I think, you know, people have a tendency, don't they, to, to say, you know, the government should do more. And I'm, it's been quite refreshing to hear not so much of kind of government side of things, a better question than where the problems are. Where, where, where do you think the solutions might be? Is it a question of sort of government support? Is it is it corporate movement? I mean, I think, you know, Peter, you raised that really interesting question about sort of, you know, the sort of psychological changes that or readiness that people have to, to kind of take on to be, you know, to, to accept sort of new changes in working conditions and and how they sort of relate to work. Maria, let's go to you. What do you think, you know, we should be focusing our efforts in terms of sort of trying to make the most progress the fastest? So, so Ed, I think actually, uh, let's not forget the government altogether. Although, as you say, (laughs) it's nice that we're all kind of being very commercial about this. But but I think there are, I can can see two areas where I think um, some sort of public initiative would really be useful. One is that I would like to see a coordinated view of what does the entire kind of charging infrastructure need to look like for UK PLC, if you will. So I think, you know, the government's various kind of incentive programs, etc. have been very directed at certain parts of the market, which is which is good. But I also think that having a holistic view, looking at what do people's driving behaviors look like? Where is the need going to be? And get that holistic view because uh, kind of leaving it up to the market is all very well to a certain point, but inevitably it will lead to certain uh, you know areas or types of charging kind of lagging behind. So having that holistic view. The other piece I think is uh, maybe lagging behind a bit is is the awareness and making it easier to switch. So obviously, from Peter's perspective, you know, businesses, it is awfully complicated and complex. And there's so many different aspects of this that you need to understand as as a business and having clearer guidance, clearer kind of case studies, how's, how's this worked, you know, how do you make the financials work, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, from a business perspective. And then finally, the consumers, again, you know, there's so many uh, interesting things you can do with your, you know, linking up your charging to your um, sustainable home setup. You know, there's companies looking at charging together with solar or even battery for your home, etc. Uh, and I know people who've, who've invested in, in, in this themselves, but it tends to be people who are really interested and have almost like a geeky interest in making their home sustainable. It doesn't have to be that way. So how do we get, make that easier for people? Those, those would be my, my, my top three. And Peter, what, what are your thoughts? It's really interesting because uh, it's, it's quite fascinating in a way that we're having this conversation today when the transition for passenger cars happened just under 25 years ago. And it's taken 25 years to get to the point where we are today. Uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that part of that is because the way we've tried to incentivize it has been either punitive. Um, so there's a there's an impact on people for not having an EV and not changing, so congestion charges and, and the like, or it's an incentive that comes after someone's already made the decision. Um, and I don't know the answers necessarily, but I think the focus has to change to be uh, incentivizing how to enable the transition, not just enable it, but accelerate it. 
we are way beyond this being urgent. The need to decarbonise the transportation industry as a whole, as we've spoken about, the passenger car industry has started. It represents 41% of the transportation industry. Trucks are the next 20 odd percent, and then we've got um, buses and you can go on and on and on. We need to look at the whole industry and we need to think about the incentives need to accelerate. I don't know what the answers to that are, but I, I don't think the incentive programs today really help um, do that, give us that acceleration and that, that, that advanced transition. That's a really interesting kind of idea there around, around urgency, isn't there? And I, and I kind of agree, I think, you know, given, especially given where we are at the moment, I mean, I think, you know, with a sort of an energy crisis kind of brewing sort of domestically, it does feel a bit like, you know, sort of transportation's been a bit sort of overlooked, doesn't it? I, I mean, I mean, Neil, do you, do you think that we've kind of uh, taken our eye off the ball? I think um, the interesting thing is that we've seen the policies and the subsidies change and morph over the last five to ten years, haven't we, really? Um, and I think your question is, where, where is it going to go next for best effect? I think the good news is that there are more and more private businesses like ours that are willing to make that um private investment into infrastructure. We can see it is a long-term go. Businesses out there today which thinks it's going you know, to be a quick three to four-year four payback, and that's definitely not the case, as Maria was highlighting earlier. You know, it's a long-term infrastructure play, very much like you know, the cable business. So the good news is there's private businesses that are willing to, to, to make that investment. I think the point that Maria made, actually, I think it are really spot on. You know, it is about education, and for us, it's about education of the consumers, predominantly because, actually, when we're deploying infrastructure in the public realm the public has a significant voice. And, you know, when we come to go and uh, suggest that we should go and deploy a number of charge points in the street, um, you have to go through a consultation process. And if the public objects and the local authority decides that the public knows best and decides not to contend it, the charges won't go in there. And and at the moment, whilst the number of electric vehicles, as Peter was saying earlier, is, is increasing at a great rate, the vast majority of people today don't and haven't driven an electric vehicle and therefore, when we go through that public consultation process, we're saying to them, inadvertently, we're saying to them, where would you like your charging point? And of course, if they haven't got an electric vehicle, they're thinking, well, I don't need one. I haven't got an electric vehicle. Forget it. Now, of course, the pendulum swings for those local authorities because in you know two, three, four, five years' time, whenever it happens, those same residents will be knocking on the door going, why haven't I got an electric vehicle charging point outside my house? Because actually, when we asked you, you said you didn't need one, so we didn't put one there. So education is really critical in that regard. And linked to that... You know, the government has gone down a route of saying, here is a national government target that we want to achieve 300,000 charging points. We're now going to leave it to local authorities to go and do it. And local authorities for the last 15, 20 years have had budget cuts, um, headcount uh, freezes and an increasing workload in terms of what they're doing. So, you know, you look at COVID over the last two and a half years, absolutely rightly, they're focused. They've had to focus on making sure that, you know, policies, systems, money, support has been there to help their residents get, get through that issue. And guess what's going to happen next? The, the cost of living crisis, the same thing's going to happen. So in terms of eyes off the ball, the local authorities are trying to figure out how do they help their residents through these different crises. Is electric vehicle charging at the top of the list? No. Of course it isn't. So again, Maria's point I think is really valid, which is if the government came up with and said, we need 300,000 charging points and there's, a, and there's a central body that's going to work out and develop a strategy and a blueprint, if you like, put on a regional or local authority basis that says, here's how many charging points you need by 2025, by 2030, by 2035. Um, here's the mix between slow, fast and rapid. Now, local authority, it's up to you to define exactly where you put them, but actually we've worked with the DNOs to find out where the grid issues are and constraints. If they serve them up that strategy, that blueprint that says, okay, now you go and deploy them, you work with a partner, but guess what, actually, we'll give you 
the concession agreement, the legal contracts. We'll, we'll parcel up everything and make it as easy as possible for you to go and do it. That's exactly what they should be doing. And that's a frustration, I think, that, that I and all of my other Charging Point uh, colleagues would, would, would probably endorse and say, you know, if the government could do that, that would speed things up. The problem at the moment is they're not doing that. They're just saying, here's a target, go and deliver it. And there's no, there's not enough support. There's some support, but not enough structured support. But on that kind of question of sort of government incentives, I mean, obviously, you know, we've sort of talked about the kind of the carrots and obviously, and I think, you know, one of the quite interesting ones is, is, is something like, you know, no road tax. Feels like that may not last forever, right? I mean, I think, you know, at, at a point where, you know, petrol cars are sort of unavailable post-2030, which isn't that far away, you know, we're sort of, you know, kind of getting towards that point and getting towards a point where EVs take up an increasing share of, of, of sort of road space. And obviously, you know, with the kind of weight concerns around transportation of batteries, which obviously makes them heavier and therefore, as I understand it, there's more wear on the roads. At what point, you know, will the that, that pendulum that you've talked about, Neil, sort of swing back and start saying, well, listen, you know, you guys have got EVs, you know, you've you, you've benefited from these uh, from these from these concessions for so long. Now it's time for you to pay for the upkeep of roads. Maria, what are your thoughts? I think you're right. It's, it's at some point the you know the cost will need to be covered, and the more EVs on the road, you know, you will need to. So I mean, there's obviously different scenarios. Clearly, other countries have more uh, toll roads, for example. But you know, some sort of a road tax, which is based on usage or just just having a a car. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, if that's introduced, exactly when that is and how you make the switch is probably a pretty complex policy question for someone in government. But uh, yeah, no doubt, you know, that will have to come into play at some point. And I suppose, Peter, that that same sort of question to you. I mean, obviously, there are sort of, you know, the government is clearly kind of working to make the the sector attractive, as you said, right, they're kind of that drive to decarbonise. But do you think that, that, that people are sort of seeing this potential, you know, a sort of a swing back the other way in future might also add some further uncertainty? I mean, I don't, I don't think a, a kind of a future road tax would, would, would inevitably derail a, a sort of a move in that way. But it's a sort of another uncertainty, isn't it? Do, do, do you think that that's uh, playing into to some of those concerns? The people we talk to and our customers, that, that, that doesn't really come up. It's not something that they are concerned about. They're, as I said, their real concerns are, um, you know, is there a product that is viable and will do the job? And the second thing is, is it is it cost effective for me? Um, and actually, they probably see more benefits because over the longer term, the reality of, of, of all these situations is the cost of capital will come down. Um, so there will be a normalisation back to the, the same price points we've got today. And what they'll end up with is with a product that will cost less to maintain. Um, you know, one of the benefits of um, of electric vehicles is there's far, far less maintenance on them. So from a from a commercial sector perspective, they see that as a real big advantage and, and reasons to go there. I don't think they're really beginning to think beyond uh, what some of those other issues could be at a later stage. And, you know, I think with all of these types of, of challenges, we never are able to get together enough people to think about this as a system. And this is a system issue. Um, and, and we always just work on and focus on a isolated part of the system that is relevant today rather than taking this step back and taking this holistic view 
um, so that all those types of considerations can can be taken into consideration. Sure, sure, sure. And Neil, I mean, I think you know, look, we've kind of talked about this this charges, and I think that 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 does feel like a like a really interesting sort of a, a challenge, you know. And 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 one of those challenges around charging is obviously the amount of time it takes to to, to charge your EV. I mean, you know, overnight with a with a sort of a domestic charger, and a, and obviously sort of you know you can get fast charges. But it seems like one of the one of the solutions to this would be hydrogen. Right. I mean, I think, you know, uh, hydrogen, you could fill up a hydrogen car in the same way that you could, you know, sort of a petrol car. Neil, do you think there's, there's going to be a chance when you when you start in uh, installing uh, hydrogen pumps uh, next to your next to your charging points? No, <laughs> <laughs> no I think uh, no, I think the hydrogen game is 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 in that heavy goods vehicle space um, and for other modes of transport where the batteries don't work. Um, I mean, obviously, Tesla launched their uh, their their electric HGV ages ago, and of course, we've not seen anything further from from that point. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether whether there's, they've got an announcement or an actual product uh, product to come to the roads. But I think um, certainly when it comes to electric vehicles, um, or I should say cars and light uh, good vehicles, I think that the, you know, the die is cast. It is electric. I think you know when you get into the hydrogen debate, you get into the you quite quickly get into the how much hydrogen is actually available and how much hydrogen could be created in a green way as opposed to a brown way. Um, and when you get into that debate, I think you've lost it already. Um, so I think it, it is it is definitely going to be electric for for the cars and the and the smaller vehicles. You know, lots of good reasons for that. Um, and I think, as I say, the the, the the momentum is is gaining in terms of getting the infrastructure in place. Um, but what we need to do is encourage government to, as you say, pull out the stops and go even quicker. And 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 as Maria was talking about, you know, look to figure out how we can do it in a more joined up manner um, and, and spoon feed those local authorities to get there quicker. Peter, I, I suspect uh, you, you you may feel uh, more positively about uh, the role of hydrogen uh, in, uh, in, in in road transportation. How do you see the sort of the balance between uh, the sort of the electric uh, heavy goods and, and that the sort of the hydrogen option? Specifically from uh, um, a sector perspective, but also just, you know, as a whole ecosystem perspective, uh, I, I believe the, the approach and solution has to be one of uh, a dual energy approach where uh, we, we, we play to the advantages of, of those different energy sources. Um, so if we look at, uh, you know, electric energy, you know, using the, the battery electric um, solution for passenger cars, I agree with Neil, it's absolutely the right solution. It's, uh, it's an efficient source of energy. Uh, it's, it's relatively cheap at the moment. Uh, and, and it's abundant. But as we as we grow, the demands on the overall ecosystem, as we get more and more cars on the road, then we do need to consider other sources of energy. And, and that's where you can then start to use the best of hydrogen, which is a much superior uh, energy density and is absolutely necessary in commercial vehicles uh, because you, you can't just keep adding batteries because what you'll do is you just start to take away the payload. Um, there are actually some passenger cars that will suffer from the same problem as well. Some of the large SUVs today uh, with current battery technology, it's not possible to give you the range that you need with those types of vehicles. But hydrogen also gives you that you know, faster fuel um, opportunity as well. So I think, I think the answer here is, is not to pick one. It's actually to look at all the options and, and choose the, the right energy approach um, that has the advantages for the application that you want to apply it to. And there may be other solutions that are yet to emerge yet as well. And I think we need to 
uh, continue to be open to and be in pursuit of as many opportunities and options as as, as we can take. And Maria, what what are your thoughts about the sort of that that sort of hydrogen uh, debate? Do you see uh, hydrogen as uh, solely restricted to the sort of the heavier goods? In the same way, I do for the reasons that both Neil and and Peter have mentioned, but also I guess from a point of view of the infrastructure that you need to put in place, I think you know it wouldn't. I think it'd be really difficult to build out kind of a nationwide hydrogen petrol or sorry hydrogen station network, you know, unless you basically just uh, transition the whole car park to um, or vehicle park to uh, to hydrogen. So you know, specific kind of truck stops, sort of captive sort of depots and that sort of stuff for hydrogen. The the other thing I would I would mention in terms of kind of the application of batteries to various vehicle types is I think you know uh there's so much innovation going on in terms of one making the batteries more efficient and also making them more durable, which is kind of I mean, in terms of electric vehicles, we know now that or most people know that, you know, it's not the holy grail in terms of sustainability. You you've got to make the whole ecosystem more sustainable, uh, using less resources, etc. So, uh, you know, having batteries which are more efficient can you can use them on bigger vehicles. So you need less batteries for bigger vehicles, but also. Um, you actually need smaller batteries for passenger cars, so you know which saves um, a lot on the on the resources side and and uh, and sustainability. So even on the battery side, there is so much innovation going on and so much more kind of runway to use before we've really kind of got to the ultimate point of efficiency. Fantastic. Well, I think that is means we're pretty much out of time, so I'm going to have to. Uh, pull this, uh, this this juggernaut of, uh, of EV uh, discussion over into the lay-by and let the, uh, the, the passing traffic carry on. But listen, thank you so much, Neil, Maria, Peter. Some really interesting, uh, really interesting discussion there. I think that that idea about EVs uh, and sort of acceptance that I think we're seeing and, and the way that the problem is now about that sort of the next bottleneck, I think is, is, is a really crucial one. And it feels like there's a kind of like a real opportunity for, for change there. And that that could be sort of transformative to, to sort of transforming the entire sort of value chain. But please, to our listeners, uh, let us know what you think of these ideas. You can email us at outloud at energyvoice.com. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too. You may already know that every week the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. So if you're not already, please do follow Energy Voice Out Loud in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get this free essential briefing every Friday. This is the fourth episode of the Net Zero Nudge. Next up, we'll be talking about energy storage. So please keep an ear out for that. For today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.